Next on Book TV's Afterwards, former Harvard Law School Dean Martha Minow questions whether forgiveness and amnesties can strengthen the American justice system. She's interviewed by Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor Paul Butler. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. So full disclosure, you and I go way back. We do. You were my law professor at Harvard. You taught me family law and you were to go on from being a lowly assistant professor to a, a storied career. Oh, thank you. Uh, not culminating, but along the way, you were the dean of Harvard Law School. But when I knew you, you were just my favorite law <laughs> professor. Um, I'm not alone in that. In 2008, the junior senator from Illinois was a man named Barack Obama. And he said, when I was at Harvard Law School, I had a teacher who changed my life. Martha Minow. So. <laughs> oh, Paul, it's such a delight to be here, and I've learned so much from you through the years, so thank you for doing this. I, I couldn't pass this opportunity up. I love the book because it has your voice. Oh, it's compassionate, you. it's brilliant, it's wise, <laughs> it's grounded, and it's, it's gently provocative. Thank you. How did you come during this legendary career from access to the you know, the highest cause of legal power, to writing a book about forgiveness. I wrote a book about 20 years ago about responses to mass violence. And at that time, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa had just started. And I was so intrigued by the development of a new legal institution to deal with really horrific violence and oppression. Uh, and I wrote a book, and I called it Between Vengeance and Forgiveness, Finding an Alternative to These Two Different Responses to Horrific Acts. And ever since that time, people have said to me, why between? Why can't law itself forgive? And it, 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 it nagged at me, and that, that's what led me to write this book. Yeah, and the law does forgive at times. So you talk about some examples of how right now the law can be forgiving Tell us about some of those examples. Well, it may seem surprising, particularly since one of the most fundamental commitments to at least Western law is treating likes alike, having rules announced in advance, and whatever forgiveness is, that's not what it is. But uh, actually, whether it's bankruptcy rules that allow the forgiveness of debt or the pardon power given to the President of the United States and to governors, we have explicit devices some that are less well-known in the criminal field, you're an expert, deal with uh, expungement of records, sealing of records, but even the discretion that a prosecutor has not to go forward is a kind of forgiveness. Yeah, I was fascinated by your discussion of all of those. So I want to uh, talk about each one of them, the idea of, of bankruptcy as being a kind of forgiveness. You know, I know we have that word forgiveness, uh, but you almost invested with a, a redemptive quality, a transformative quality, mm -hmm. which I found so rich and provocative. I want to start, though, by thinking about limits to forgiveness. Uh, you say some things seem unforgivable. Are they? Well, for maybe it helps to start by defining forgiveness. And I define it as letting go of justified grievance. So I don't think we're even in the land of forgiveness if we're talking about charges or uh, disputes where there isn't a justified blame. Um, if we're dealing with justified forgiveness, I guess I do think that we need to acknowledge that law is imperfect, people are imperfect, and uh, at times letting go of even uh, justified blame is is better for everybody. It's better for the society. Um, in the interpersonal context, it is often much better even for the one who's been harmed not to carry the grudge around. For the legal system, we're not dealing with emotion so much, but we are dealing with, you know, in this country right now, mass incarceration. We have swung the criminal justice system so far in the punitive direction uh, it really makes me think about uh, a time for a, a reset. I agree with you about mass incarceration 
But there are situations where yes. vengeance seems wholly appropriate. So yes. in 2015 at Mother Emanuel yes. AME Church in South Carolina, a man yes. named Dylan Roof was welcomed into a prayer service. Now, as the whole world knows, yeah. Roof was a, a white supremacist terrorist, and he murdered nine people. Some of the family members talked about forgiveness. How yes. should we feel about that? Well, I am do have uh, a kind of astonishment. I, I did at the time when family members at the arraignment and at the sentencing hearing said that they forgave Dylan Roof. Uh, it's nothing I can imagine doing. And it's nothing that I think that the law or any other person should expect of anyone. I think that there are particularly worrisome aspects where there is a racial or gender expectation about who is supposed to forgive in this society. But I do uh, think that those individuals uh, were acting out of a religious belief, and for them it was the right thing to do. In my own analysis, their interpersonal forgiveness has nothing to do with what the law should do. And in this instance, where Dylan Roof committed just an absolutely inexcusable act, uh, hateful act, and has never shown contrition to the contrary, he has been boastful uh, and, and proud about what he did. There's no, no place for forgiveness in the legal system because he has violated the trust of everyone. But there is a sense sometimes that we expect African-American people or women or LGBT people to That's be true. forgiving when uh, we're confronted with justifiable grievances in a way that might be different from uh, white folks or heterosexual people or men. I think it's completely true, and for the same reasons, the same statement coming out of the mouth of somebody will be viewed as angry or disproportionate when it's someone who has uh, in, uh, occupied a position of relatively less power in society than it's someone who's not. And so I think we need to be vigilant about that and concerned about it. And at the same time, you know, I admire uh, when Brent Jaw, the 18-year-old brother of the murder victim uh, killed by Amber Geiger, the white female uh, police officer in Dallas, when the 18-year-old brother said after the sentencing, I forgive you, you know, that's something to admire. It comes out of his religious belief, but there should be no lesser sentence, in my own, my own view, for the conduct uh, well, in that case. What about in that case when the judge stepped down from her bench and, and hugged Amber Geiger, who had yeah. just been convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison, um, the judge said that, uh, she hugged Amber Geiger because Geiger asked her to. Yes, I, I was more troubled by that. Uh, and the judge has a position uh, as an officer of the law. Uh, there's, she didn't do anything wrong in the sense that the trial was over, the sentencing was over, but still she was wearing her robe. And whatever her personal feelings uh, were, uh, I guess I think that they belong outside the courtroom. So that's not in your mind, a, a kind of paradigm example of no. the kind of forgiveness the law should exercise? And why, why not? Well, I, again, that that seems to me about the interpersonal relationships, whereas what I'm interested in is when law itself, when the exercise of charges or uh, exacting a sanction, when that seems, even though it's warranted, it seems like, okay, there, there are good reasons now to let it go. And bankruptcy is a really good example in my Yeah, mind. so let's, let's take them in, in order. So you start by thinking about children. I do. And you think about two different uh, sets of kids, uh, children who have been forced to fight in wars, often overseas or exploited in, in other uh, ways. And you also think about children, mainly in the United States, who get charged and are guilty of serious offenses. So how should yes. forgiveness work in that context? You know, one of the methods that we lawyers use is comparison. And it's always been striking to me, since I do work in international human rights, to see how child soldiers 
are discussed and treated in international law. And there are people who are abducted or coerced, but there are also people who volunteer to join armed conflicts. And many commit terrible acts, murder, rape. They recruit other children. And then there's the question, if the conflict ends, what to do? What to do about those people? Well, in the international context, the approach taken by the law is that those most responsible should be punished. The adults who recruited them should be punished. And the International Criminal Court has no authority to go after people who joined the conflicts when they were children. And uh, instead, uh, internationally, while it's left to each nation, there's been a trend towards talking about reconciliation and rehabilitation and services. And I contrast that with the treatment across this country of young people drawn into conflicts, whether it's drug-related or gang-related. And we, ha- we have the opposite view. We have a punitive uh, and, and a way of talking about super predators as if they're in no context, no acknowledgement of the adults who created the world in which they are drawn into the best option is to be in the drug trade, uh, where the schools are not offering a real opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't talk about the adults who are responsible. And instead, despite the origins of the juvenile court as a place that was supposed to be more forgiving and more rehabilitative, we have made it a place that treats young people just like adults, either automatically transferring them to adult court or uh, levying kinds of sanctions for conduct that no other country in the world does. So I think we could learn from that example. And I think in both contexts, coming up with an alternative like, uh, like a truth commission, where the young people have a chance to account for what they did, to admit it, to talk about it, uh, to grieve themselves, maybe find a path to forgive themselves, but also then to reinvest in them so they have a chance to join society and be constructive participants. So when you think of what the legal response to children should be, forgiveness doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable. Absolutely right. And indeed, I think talking with former child soldiers, former gang members, they're the first ones who are blaming themselves, who who know they did something wrong. And indeed, there are some instances where young people are not held responsible and they feel adrift. So to actually have the chance to say, yes, there were norms, I violated them, and now let's look forward, what do I do? How do I make amends? And when you were talking about child soldiers, you mentioned that some children are coerced into going into that um, kind of of terrorism, and other children do it voluntarily. Should the law treat that differently, those two sets of children? Well, it's, it's certainly something the law has tended to treat very differently. I think that the continuum, though, of coercion to voluntariness is more salient, maybe even with children than it is with adults, though it's present for all of us. And when we say that someone volunteered, again, under what circumstances, with what choices? So understanding the context matters a lot. In my view, uh, actually, more relevant is whether the people acknowledge they did something wrong and want to make amends. Uh, I'm very affected by Brian Stevenson's uh, comment, uh, the great civil rights lawyer, a criminal justice lawyer and professor, who says no one should be judged by the worst moment in their life. And I think that there's more of a wellspring of sympathy in that spirit when we think about young people who have decades ahead of them. And we should tap into that. You know, in criminal law, we think, in criminal law, we talk about deterrence. Yes. Which is the idea that when someone causes harm, there should be consequences. And one of the purposes of those consequences is for everyone else to learn. If you make a mistake, if you commit a crime, you will be punished. And the idea is that stops other people from committing those crimes. So in the context of children, since they are more vulnerable and more exploitable, if they're not 
consequences, or are you concerned about deterrence? I am, and I'm concerned about education generally. Um, but there are pretty good studies that show that heaping larger and larger sentences don't actually deter young people from participating in criminal activity. And it may be that actually thinking long-term is not actually the strong suit of a lot of adolescents. Uh, and so the, the response uh, that the law should take to deterrence should be to note who people are and what it takes to educate them. And, and, of course, we talk about specific deterrence to that individual as well as general deterrence to other people. So what can they learn? And, again, I think showing that there's a path uh, forward uh, is not going to undermine the recognition that it's shameful to have violated the norms of the society. You, you know, a lot of our understanding about children making mistakes is informed by, by science. Yes. Including... Uh, research that you talk about that suggests that uh, children's brains take a long time to develop. And in fact, now they're not fully developed until they're around 25. And um, <laughs> for guys, for men, yes, male yes. brains take longer than female brains, the evidence suggests. But 25, <laughs> yeah. you know, that seems, okay, you're getting up there. Um, at the same time, in response to this evidence, uh, there are some courts that are thinking about uh, dealing with folks who commit crimes, including up to age 25, in a way different from, from older folks. How do you feel about that? Well, I think it's uh, uh, about time that law took uh, greater note of the developments in neuroscience. And certainly it was that kind of evidence that affected the Supreme Court in its decision about life without parole for juveniles. Um, and uh, I think that it's also relevant to what schools do and can do. So in increasing numbers of high schools in the United States have shifted their disciplinary process to one that is participatory with the uh, other peers who actually can arrange for what's called restorative justice processes and make it an educational experience for everybody where those who have uh, injured another actually have to be accountable but also come up with a plan about what they're going to do and hear what the impact of their actions are on others and, and fold it into the educational experience. That takes account of the science, of the social science, of the developmental stages that the young people are at. Yeah. You know, my mom's a, a former uh, second grade teacher. She retired from uh, teaching for almost 25 years in the Chicago public schools. And she can be hard on kids. <laughs> and I find that's true of a lot of yes. uh, teachers, of especially elementary and high school teachers. In some ways, I think they develop higher expectations of them but another part is just about rules. So in the criminal law world, one idea is that the purpose of criminal law is to impose just a, a minimum set of standards that everybody has to follow. We don't care who you are. So minimum, like don't kill, don't sexually assault, don't steal. And there the idea is, that's basic. That's part of your responsibility as a citizen. And if you don't obey those minimum standards, then you should be punished. There are consequences. Yes. And there should be consequences. And the law, I think, uh, every society has come up with rules of that nature. And there should be consequences that are known by everyone and are applied fairly and evenly. And they're not always applied fairly and evenly. I think that the uh, uh, disregard and distrust of the legal system is another factor to take into serious account. A teacher who's tough, like your mother, uh, is usually very well regarded by the students because they they're, uh, have high expectations. They're expressing a belief in the capacity of the young people to actually live up to those rules. A legal system that is inconsistent doesn't earn that kind of trust. 
And when we don't have people trusting the legal system, it can't operate. The police don't get the information that they need. They don't get the help from the community about who actually was to blame. And so, in part, this call for forgiveness in the law, on my part, is a way to say that's one way that we as human beings earn trust with one another. So you mentioned inconsistency in law. And your book suggests that in some ways, when you talk about forgiveness of children who have committed crimes, that's a harder case to make. That seems unfamiliar. But if we talk about forgiveness of debt, then people think about that. And the laws treated that kind of forgiveness differently. So interesting. We, of course, use the word forgiveness, you said uh, so, when we talk about debt. And if we go back in history, there was a similar moral view about failing to to pay uh, a creditor uh, that we have about violating a criminal norm. Um, and while there's... There were debtors' prisons. Debtors' prisons, for absolutely, uh, ultimately ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, although we have new forms of debtors' prisons now when people cannot pay fees and fines imposed by the legal system itself. You know, I think over time we've seen in the United States a fascinating evolution when it comes to bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is actually present in the United States Constitution. Really? The Congress is given power under the Constitution to enact a national bankruptcy law. And this is in no small way traceable to Thomas Jefferson, who was himself in debt much of his life. Wow. <laughs> and he also, because he was Thomas Jefferson, developed a kind of political theory about it. And his view was one generation should not burden the next with its debts. The, the creation of a national bankruptcy law has in many people's views, been associated in the United States with our tradition of entrepreneurship and second chances for people who start a business and it doesn't work. We, of course, have uh, business bankruptcy. We also have personal bankruptcy. uh, And there's the same possibility for individuals to start over. There are consequences. There are consequences, of course, for um, uh, any asset that people have has to be made available to uh, help pay off the the debts. And there also is the loss of a credit rating, and people may take 10 years, and companies may take a long time to rebuild their credit rating and or be charged higher interest for the next time they are borrowing. But what we do is we allow people to turn the page and start over rather than be so buried by debt that they can never get out of it. And yes, I do think that there is a reason that the United States has a tradition of innovation and risk-taking that's the envy of many parts of the world. And the bankruptcy law is part of that. That's amazing, the idea that bankruptcy, forgiveness of debt, is part of uh, why the United States is a a leader in technology. Really uh, interesting idea. You talk about recent uh, legislation bankruptcy legislation that exempts student loans? Well, here's this inconsistency problem. Uh, Treating some kinds of loans differently than others seems to me to undermine basic fairness. And here, to put maybe an underline the problem, when we have a situation right now where we have for-profit schools that have failed because they have not delivered a quality education, The schools themselves can declare bankruptcy, but the young people who took out the loans, they cannot. And that seems really unfair in my mind. The nature of the exemptions is a political process, uh, and uh, those who were able to get the student loans exempted, that's relatively recent in American bankruptcy law. We could change it. I think we should change it. There have been uh, programs, administrative programs, to allow for debt forgiveness for young people. The current administration is cutting back on those programs. That seems counterproductive. We should be investing in young people. And when people say, well, these students knew what they were signing up for, so you got to pay. Life's tough. I would rather not pay my mortgage, but I know i got to pay it. Well, I do believe that there are rules for a reason, um, but oftentimes, and here's what bankruptcy does so well, the, the participation in a problem is more than one person. 
So the people who made these loans actually contributed to the problem. And the people who, uh, who fed the, the myth that these for-profit schools would actually lead to a job, they fed the problem. And the regulators who failed to make sure that the schools delivered on their promise, they fed the problem. And then if we talk about people with student loans who actually went to good schools, but they can't get a job because the economy is in trouble, again, it's not entirely their fault. So recognizing that we have concentric circles of responsibility is another reason why law should forgive and find moments when we need to accommodate the competing interests, which is what bankruptcy does. Bankruptcy says we have many creditors. Not everybody's going to get paid 100%, but we can spread what is available so everybody gets some of the money that's available. And are you worried about people exploiting the system? It is a concern, and economists have even come up with a phrase for it, which is moral hazard, really developed in the context of insurance, that when you know you're insured, you're willing to take more of a risk. Uh, How do we make sure people actually internalize and think hard about the risk that they're taking? I think that this is a, a concern, but I also think it's wrong to put all the responsibility on one actor and often the actor with the least ability to accommodate, to take into account all of the considerations. Creditors ought to be thinking hard about who they loan to. You know, I talk in the chapter about the very serious problems of developing countries that have sovereign debt because they maybe they took on too much debt, but maybe they had a a government system that took on debt that was not going to serve the people. But more importantly, maybe the creditors were taking advantage of these people who were in such need. Well, there's a perfect situation where we need something like bankruptcy to be able to develop uh, an accommodation, and we also need the creditors to be more careful. Although one thing that creditors say when the creditors are either a a big international money fund or a mortgage bank, we take risk. And one reason that we take risk by giving some people mortgages when they might not qualify by the regular criteria or some developing countries' loans is because we know that there is a guarantee that we're going to get our money back. And if there's not that guarantee, then we're not going to be willing to take those risks. And in the long run, that's going to end up hurting uh, the folks that Martha Minow is concerned about. Well, it's, it, it is fascinating to me that when Nelson Mandela became the head of South Africa, many people said, you should refuse to pay the debt, the international debt that was taken on by the apartheid government. Uh, and he and his advisors decided, no, they would go ahead and, and repay because they didn't want to lose the credit standing. Those are choices for the country to explore and I can, I can admire that, but I can also see that at times, uh, sometimes, when a country has taken on debt, when individuals have taken on debt, they can't find a way out of it. South Africa, as troubled as it was coming out of apartheid, did have some resources and was able, ultimately, to find a way to pay off the debt. And other countries are just, you know, decades and decades and decades without any sign of hope. So what, what should happen in, in your ideal world if we think about this, this staggering debt that a lot of developing countries have now? Um, what, what, what should the legal response be? Well, it's interesting. We don't have an international bankruptcy system. And instead, basically ad hoc bankruptcy is developed with institutions like the International Monetary Fund playing a role and others I think we could uh, more helpfully come up with an international agreement for a structure that is in place for when it's needed rather than trying to scramble each time. And it should set uh, a kind of parameters that uh, discourage creditors as well as the countries from taking on debt that everyone knows will never be repaid. And at the same time, come up with a process for sensible repayment uh, uh, negotiations if there are unexpected challenges like a world uh, financial crisis. So I mentioned that you taught me family law. I know you also teach constitutional law, but I, 
I'm so impressed by your knowledge of <laughs> bankruptcy law and international trade law. Yeah, well, thank you. How, how did you learn all this? Well, I, I thought to myself in the middle of thinking about this book, I was uh, still the dean at the school. I thought, how did I get into the subject of debt? And then I remembered, well, my students have debt. The school has debt. It was after the financial crisis in this country. Uh, everybody was dealing with debt. And, you know, if we're lucky, what law offers us is a, is a kind of skeleton key that we can use to learn the tools to deal with the challenges as they arise. Yeah, well, you're working the key. <laughs> so I want to talk about another form of forgiveness uh, that you write about, pardons. But before we get to that, let's talk about this moment in American history. So there's this idea of cancel culture, which is especially on the internet when someone does something that the Twitterverse judges is wrong, that person gets canceled. How should we feel about that? How do you feel about it? Uh, I'm worried about it. Um, human beings have a capacity to forgive, and that's how we live with each other. Cancel culture is the opposite of that. It is uh, quick to condemn and to condemn forever. Um, it is very fascinating to me that every every religion, every philosophy, has developed a respect for forgiveness as a human capacity to acknowledge the imperfections that we all have. Um, And I think one of the challenges that we living in the Internet age have is that we don't have the three-dimensional experience of looking someone in the eye, seeing the effect of our conduct on the other person, imagining what if I were that person. Uh, And cancel culture, I think, is a feature of the Internet society. Some people would say it's, it's about righteous anger. And here I'm wondering, what's the relationship between anger and forgiveness? Can you forgive someone and be angry at them at the same time? Or does forgiveness require releasing that anger? I think anger is actually often the uh, wellspring of a sense of injustice. So I think anger is a very important emotion. And, uh, and and it's a clue when we're angry. Then we should say, okay, well, what's angering me? And there often is an injustice. And we are, each of us uh, has uh, should have the dignity and self-respect to demand the right kind of treatment. But if the anger swells out of control and it prevents us from having relationships with other human beings, that deserves the person who, themse- who ourselves were trying to actually live a life. You know, it's uh, very striking to me that Coretta Scott King was asked, how can you forgive people uh, who, after your husband was assassinated and so forth? And she said, because if I don't, the anger will kill me. I think letting go of anger is a resource, and it's a resource often that people who have less power are better at. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, being forced to forgive is horrible. Being told that your anger is not justified is wrong when it is justified. What, what worries me is this all or nothing. I think sometimes, uh, you know, it'll take people time to forgive. And people should have the time. Um, but to cancel culture implies never it, it implies condemnation, uh, banishment forever and ever. You know, a lot of people are, are asking me, what about Me Too uh, and Me Too problems? And when do we forgive the people who've been charged with uh, sexually harassing or assaulting others? Well, in my own view, it's way too early as a society to talk about forgiveness on that score. We've only recently started to recognize the harm And so many who've been accused deny that they've done anything wrong. So until we're into that world of acknowledging wrongs, we're not in the forgiveness land. Uh, And so we we need anger, but we also need forgiveness. Okay. And so for some of the men who've been implicated in the uh, Me Too movement, they, in some instances, have suffered consequences, and in other instances have gone on to... Uh, prestigious appointments. So uh, how should we feel about, let's say, uh, a Supreme Court uh, justice who's 
been the subject of, of Me Too allegations. Uh, would he or should he be welcome to be a judge at a law school's moot court competition? I bet your school has struggled with that one. Uh, I'm sure law schools around the country are. Um, I, I, I guess I do believe that, um, not to talk about any particular case, that um, when people acknowledge it, that they've either done wrong or that if they claim they didn't do the wrong they're charged with, that they condemn the wrong that is being described, maybe there's a chance to bring them back into a place of honor. Um, that can often take a long, long time. Yeah. So, pardon. <laughs> uh, pardon is, well, I was going to say it is a power that the president has that comes from the divine right of kings, but you do a, a much better history of it <laughs> in, in that chapter of the book. So, uh, how did this idea that uh, the leader, the head of state, uh, should be able to forgive in a legal way, in the form of a pardon? How did that start? Well, thanks for the kind words. Uh, I, there are others who study it and know much more than I do, but I was fascinated to learn that the founders of the United States saw the pardon power of kings and transmuted it in many ways to be a power given to the president, one of the few uh, unchecked powers. There's no check of uh, the other branches on the president's power to forgive. Um, it, the only exceptions, one is implicit, which is the president can only forgive federal crimes, cannot forgive state crimes, and one is explicit, the president cannot forgive, quote, in cases of impeachment. Uh, which I assume includes his own impeachment as well as impeachment of others. I think that... Does, the, does that also mean that the president can't pardon himself? It is not mentioned, and the arguments go both ways, since there's one exception and there's no other exception. Maybe he can pardon himself for crimes. I think that violates an unwritten norm that no person can be the judge in his own case uh, and would be viewed widely as illegitimate... Uh, the framers actually endorsed that view that no one should be the judge in his own case or her own case. But they also had the view that the pardon power for the president could be a kind of check on the judiciary, that when uh, the criminal justice system has worked its whole way through, there still may be all things considered factors that would warrant letting go of punishment or condemnation maybe after someone has served their sentence or shown contrition or when they've done other service to the society or in one instance, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion, where it would be better for everybody to say let bygones be bygones. You know, when, when President Gerald Ford uh, offered an amnesty to people who resisted the draft during the Vietnam era. That was a way to try to say, let's put that chapter behind us. And what about when President Gerald Ford offered a pardon to Richard Nixon? I can tell you, I'm old enough to remember, I was really mad. <laughs> uh, I thought it was wrong, and uh, many others at the time thought it was wrong, but uh, Ford himself thought... Uh, that uh, Nixon was giving up the presidency and that he would be punished uh, for the rest of his life that way, and that it would be better to turn the page for the country. Uh, at the time, there was concern that it was a trade. Uh, had Nixon said to Ford, I'll step down, you can be president if you pardon me. If so, that would be really troubling. Uh, I, I don't believe that that's what happened, though who knows, it's lost in the, in the shrouds of, of history. But I do think looking back now with decades uh, intervening, it was better for the country. Uh, and, and, and why is that? You know, one concern is that um, pardoning Richard Nixon, in a sense, made him look above the law. So if we can do like one of those surreal uh, TV shows where they do the alternative uh, history. Uh, what if Nixon had not been pardoned, and what if he'd been charged with a crime, uh, just like some of his cabinet officers yeah. were, um, and he was made to suffer the consequences? 
you know, uh, as is always true with alternative history, we can speculate. It might have been just fine and good. It might have helped the country underscore uh, the principles. Uh, you don't uh, burgle and, and spy on the opposing party uh, or the other kinds of conduct that he and his compatriots were uh, charged with. But at the same time, um, especially when you're talking about a whole society or large groups, there is the risk of creating cycles of vengeance and revenge. And to say, okay, this is done. We have put a period on that. He lost the presidency. Now we're moving forward. Ford had some things he wanted to do. He didn't want to spend the whole time of his presidency still fighting over what Nixon had done when he had known what he hadn't known. So I can see a value of that the same way that after the transition to democracy, the apartheid government uh, from apartheid in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came up with a kind of amnesty, conditional amnesty. Let's put that behind us and start a new chapter in our in our country. Yeah, you know, one of the things I found really fascinating about your book is the way you um, excavate the Constitution to find forgiveness. So you talked about how it's embedded in the bankruptcy clause, and now in the pardon pardon power power of the president. How's that worked out? (laughs) So let's talk about President Trump. Yes. Uh, Who was the first pardon of his career? Well, I think it's unpardonable. His (laughs) first pardon was to Sheriff Arpaio of Arizona, and it was a pardon not for an ordinary crime. It was a pardon for persistent violation of civil rights and then being held in contempt of court for continuing those same acts that were found to violate the law. And to pardon him, it seems to me, was unpardonable, really unjustifiable, uh, for many reasons. One was it looked like payback to a campaign supporter because Arpaio was an earlier supporter of uh, then-candidate Trump. Another reason was it uh, basically is a slap in the face to the legal system. It says not only is it okay to violate the civil rights laws, it's okay to persistently violate them. And it was a, a slap in the face to the judiciary, where the judiciary is holding someone in contempt. And it's not the only time that President Trump has actually sneered at judges and said that he does not respect them. So-called judges was one of his phrases. The rule of law is what makes us great. And to use the pardon power to actually undermine the rule of law, I think is inexcusable. I think one of the problems that we have in this country right now is that we don't actually even come up with a way to talk about when are pardons allowed and when not. Who should be excused and when not? And I, I would love to hear from you on just that issue. So um, often your name comes up in the context of Supreme Court appointments. You've had a couple of colleagues run for president of the United States. I haven't heard you talk about that. But who would President Martha Minow pardon? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I have honestly never thought about that, although I'm very interested to see some new governors, Governor Newsom in California, Governor Pritzker in Illinois, do something that I think I would uh, want to do as well. Both of them have exercised the governor's pardon power to pardon individuals who are undocumented immigrants, now at risk of being deported uh, under the current policies that treat the sheer fact of being undocumented as a crime. Uh, And in the case of uh, Governor Pritzker, he forgave a man who had served in the U.S. military. And then he was charged with a drug offense, and he was convicted, and he served his sentence. And at that point, uh, he was pardoned. That seemed like a good use of the pardon power to me, someone who had actually shown He paid his dues in multiple ways uh, and shouldn't now face deportation. And and what about your former student, uh, Barack Obama? Uh, How did he do in terms of pardon? You know, I am very uh, uh, proud of my my own uh, more recent students who approached me and said, could we ask President Obama to write something for the Harvard Law Review? And I said, I think he's a little busy. (laughs) 
And they said, no, you know, he could have a statement about what he's tried to do in criminal justice. So he did. He wrote a, an article and published it about how he used the pardon power, among other tools, to try to deal with the discrepancies. Uh, for example, uh, when the Congress changed uh, and reduced the uh, sentence for uh, uh, the use of crack cocaine, which had been a disparate sentence compared to other forms of cocaine, problem was people had already been convicted and were serving time. And he used the pardon power to allow people out who had already served uh, the amount of time that the new sentence uh, would have uh, uh, provided for. You know, I think that he um, had the problem of finding that the pardon process, as he developed it, was too slow. And uh, it, he didn't pardon as many people as he wanted. Uh, you know, you compare it with President Trump, who doesn't have any process at all. It seems to be whatever rea reality TV star has talked to him most recently is going to influence. And I'd rather have a system that is more rule-like and careful, and that's what President Obama did. Some people think it was too careful. I think it probably was. I think uh, more significantly, he started too late. He served for eight years. He didn't start this process until well into the second term. So I think... Uh, if I were president, I pardon a whole lot of people. I mean, if, if we yes. think about the uh, issue of mass incarceration, yes. 2.3 million people in prison and jails, I think if president, why not just start with the, you know, 100,000? Let, let, let's make that our objective. Well, I, I, I do think that um, the way in which we incarcerate people for a long time, when they have no violent offenses... Uh, no other country does that. Uh, that would be a place to start as well. But again, the president only has the ability to pardon federal crimes. And most people you know, who are suffering from mass incarceration are dealing with state crimes here. So that's why governors matter. So early in your story career, you clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall. I did. It was a tremendous honor. He was my hero, one of the major reasons I went to law school. And I don't think of him as a particularly forgiving person. I didn't know him. I became a lawyer in part because I was inspired uh, by his career. But I see him, I guess, as an avenger, as someone with a sense of, of righteous anger. Do you have a, uh, an idea about where he would be on this forgiveness thing? I think you are uh, very uh, right about that in, when it comes to injustice. And I remember as a law clerk going to him and saying, here's a complaint that was dismissed because it was outside the statute of limitations, but it was such a compelling uh, issue, or maybe it was filed too late. Shouldn't, shouldn't we create an exception, allow this claim to be heard? And he said, if we change the rules... They won't be there for us when we want the rules. And that affected me so deeply. I taught civil procedure for years and years <laughs> and years. Uh, again, uh, a sense of righteous indignation, a sense of injustice. Uh, that inspired me to go to law school. It inspired me to teach law for almost 40 years. I think that at the same time, when it, when it comes to the inequities of the legal system or to recognizing that people have turned their life around, he could be very forgiving. Uh, I think he's the only justice in recent memory who actually served as a defense lawyer in the criminal justice system. And he understood the life circumstances of so many people who get caught up in crime in a way that uh, I wish more judges did. You know, we talked about the Amber Geiger case. She's the uh, former police officer who was convicted of murder for um, killing a man inside his own home. She got 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, case involving uh, parents who cheated, who gamed the system in order to get their kids into elite schools, uh, some of those folks have gotten what appear to be low sentences, four weeks. And I think among some folks who have concerns about racial justice, uh, there's uncertainty about how to respond. So some people think, those are appropriate sentences, but the problem is that a black person, a Latina, uh, probably wouldn't get the benefit yes. of that kind of mercy. And then the question is, well, should we hate? Should we hate on the fact that these white folks are getting these 
benefits and just, or should we say, that's great, but everybody should get them. So one theory is that the law is not going to change until uh, white folks have to suffer the same kind of consequences that people of color do. So in a sense, I think that's an argument against forgiveness. It's an argument that the way that the law changes here is when people, white folks, people in power, uh, are concerned about stuff happening to them. Well, uh, there's a lot of power in that uh, uh, that, uh, uh, approach. I, I guess I do think that the inequities of the legal system that really um, justifiably produce distrust um, uh, should be front and center for any of us who care about teaching law, improving law. Um, And uh, I also um, feel strongly that the discussion of forgiveness needs a jurisprudence because while we as individuals should be free to decide who to forgive and when and how, however we want. If the legal system is going to use these tools, whether it's bankruptcy or pardons, it should do so in a way that reflects the rule of law, treating likes alike, being fair, being even-handed. One of my favorite cartoons uh, from The New Yorker shows a judge with a very big nose and a big mustache looking down at a defendant who has the same nose and the same mustache, and he says, obviously uh, not guilty. This is the danger of human beings, that we have biases and we have prejudices, uh, and we should be held to account. Are we acting on those, or are we applying fairly? And this sense of, uh, you know, letting uh, uh, the, the swimmer in Stanford off lightly, as a judge did for sexual assault, because the judge says he has such a bu- uh, brilliant future ahead of him. Well, what about the uh, others who the judge doesn't recognize as having a brilliant future ahead of them. That, that's, that's bad. That's wrong. Yeah. So it, it's emotional uh, when we think about um, the law exercising mercy. It could do it in a moving way. Um, it's also emotional when we think of arguments against forgiveness or why in some contexts it might be hard to forgive. And, you know, something happened to you that for me, it would be tough to, to deal with. So uh, you are the recipient of the Joseph B. and Toby Glitter Prize, um, one of the most prestigious awards an academic could get. It's a ceremony at Brandeis University where you're accepting the award and some student activists interrupt the ceremony, and they call you out. That would be tough for me to forgive. It was not uh, the most comfortable uh, period of uh, a moment of my life, Um, but I understood that the student activists were not really focusing on me. They were using a moment of some visibility the same way that um, is often the case when there are people who are sympathetic to a cause and, uh, and they become the subject of harsh criticism. Uh, uh, you know, I, I do think that when students violate school rules, they should have consequences. Um, this was not a violation of school rules. It was an interruption of a ceremony. I was happy to then listen to them. And give them their chance. It It was not fun. It was not fun. And forgiveness, I guess it doesn't, forgiveness doesn't necessarily have to be easy or it's not easy. No, I think uh, forgiveness takes hard work. I'm not very forgiving. I drive in Boston. Really? (laughs) I drive in Boston. Who could be forgiving? But, and I do, again, think that anger and a sense of being wronged is an important part of asserting our own self respect. But I also think having a bigger picture of what's this for, who's this about, how do we move forward? Um, Every major civilization has come up with ways to deal with uh, harms and violations that aren't just always applying the rules. They also include forgiveness. You know, the the ancient Athens, the Jubilee in the Bible, Hammurabi's Code, coming up with methods to forgive, to, to let people who are incarcerated free, to let people who are enslaved be free. 
sometimes when I was reading the book, I almost detected a, a spiritual vibe. Mm-hmm. Is, is that fair? I think it's fair. I think it's fair. I'm Jewish. Uh, we've just had uh, the most significant holiday in our year, which is Yom Kippur, where we ask atonement. We, uh, we, we apologize to people around us for wrongs that we've done. So it's certainly been a big part of my life. But uh, in the research for this book, I was fascinated to find the role of forgiveness in, in really every religion, Buddhism, uh, all kinds of Christianity. Uh, it, there's a deep commitment to cultivating what, what is a human capacity, but it does take work. You know, think about children who don't know how to apologize. I think we need to teach people how do you apologize and take responsibility. It's not an apology when you say, well, if anyone was hurt. That's not an apology. And uh, just as it takes work and learning to learn to apologize, I think it takes work and learning to, to forgive. Um, and, and is an apology a prerequisite of forgiveness? Yeah, in my book, it certainly helps enormously. Yes. Yes. So you, you tell amazing stories in some hard cases. In the book, one of the ones that moved me the most um, has to do with an, an immigrant. Uh, who wanted to become a citizen, and this is in the 1940s, and as part of his naturalization hearing, it's revealed that he committed an unspeakable act. Heinous crime. Tell us about that case. So his name is Louis Rapuy, and he had five children, one of whom was born with uh, such severe disabilities that he basically was like an infant. He couldn't speak, couldn't feed himself or take care of any of his bodily needs. And uh, at some point, uh, Mr. Rapuy took chloroform, and he put this child to death. It's unspeakable. I'm someone who's spent a lot of my life working on the rights of people with disabilities. Uh, every life, in my view, is, is uh, a life of dignity, and this is, you know, absolutely inexcusable. He was charged with a crime, and he was convicted. But it's interesting that in that criminal action that preceded the immigration activity, the jury recommended utmost clemency to the judge. And the judge, in turn, suspended the sentence. So those were system; those are elements of forgiveness built into the legal system. The jury recommending, the judge responding, and then we have this second process: the immigration process. The law then, as now, says the demonstration of good moral character for the prior five years is required. Mr. Rapui or his lawyer made a mistake, and they filed for citizenship such that this act fell within the five-year period. Two more weeks it would not have. Wow. So that itself is another kind of forgiveness that the legal system creates, that it says after the certain time period, we don't look back. Yes. So what should happen in that immigration case? You know, fascinating uh, effort by the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit was to say, well, we don't know what to do, and what he did was wrong, and should we put it to moral experts? We don't know. So we're going to dismiss the case without prejudice, allowing him to refile in the future. Another kind of forgiveness. Wow. So we're, we're ending here. Um, I said at the beginning that uh, Barack Obama said that you changed his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is... Your 25th book? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Wow. What's the impact that you hope this book has? I really do want uh, to encourage uh, discussions about how this country and people around the world can draw on the very best of human capacities rather than the worst And the legal system, I have devoted my life to it and the idea of justice, uh, but the legal system itself makes mistakes and should be able to draw on the best of human experience, and the best includes the capacity to forgive. I hope that the criminal justice reform movement in this country is tapping into that sentiment, building coalitions that otherwise don't agree on anything else. 
Uh, and I hope that we can learn t- to see that the start a new page practice in the bankruptcy area could teach us something in criminal law where we are so punitive that even people who have served their sentences have these collateral consequences of their crimes, not allowed to vote in many places, not allowed to have a professional license, not allowed to keep their children, not allowed to uh, get housing in certain places. I think that enough is enough, and we should find ways uh, to, to acknowledge forgiveness. We are imperfect as human beings. The law is imperfect. Um, uh, great apes actually engage in rituals of forgiveness after they have conflict. This is a capacity that we have, and we should draw on it. Uh, you've written a book where you talk about child soldiers, student debt, uh, misuse of the pardon power by some presidents, a book that manages to be optimistic and inspiring. Thank you. So I think it will have the impact impact that you hope it will. Well, great talking you. to you. Great talking with you. Wonderful questions. Wonderful to see you. Uh, thank you. So I, I think they said we should continue to talk for a little while.